Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Saturday, October 16th. We're going to do things a little bit differently on today's show. We are dividing up our coverage of the men's and women's singles competition at Indian Wells into two separate podcast episodes. On this show, you're going to hear me discuss the men's action with a returning champion on our CR Show's contributor to Tennis Now, the U.S. Open and French Open website host of the Lucky Let Cord Pod as well. Our friend Chris Otto joins me to discuss all of the chaos that's happened on the men's side at Indian Wells. We talk about another breakthrough run for Cam Norrie. Is he the most improved player on the ATP Tour in 2021? I know that's a dis- topic I discussed earlier in the week with Gil Gross. We explored in even further depth here today with Chris. We also discuss what has to be considered the breakthrough run of Taylor Fritz's young career, the American reaching his first Masters semifinal here at Indian Wells. Straight set wins over Nakashima, Berrettini, and Sinner before fighting off a match point to knock off Alex Zverev, 7-6 in the third set yesterday. We discuss, is this a fluke run, or is this something that has been building for the young American? How can he you know, capitalize on this momentum, use it moving forward throughout the course of his career? We also, of course, had to discuss runs from Dimitrov, runs from Vasilishvili, where things stand in the race to the year-end finals, and so much more. It's a fantastic conversation. I know all of you listeners are going to enjoy quickly. Before we get to it, our women's singles competition recap is over on the Great Shot podcast feed. Tennis Channel editorial producer David Kane joins me to talk about the run of Paula Bedosa, a breakthrough 2021 season for the 23-year-old Spaniard. We discuss where she goes from here. We talk about the run of Victoria Azarenka. Is Yelena Ostapenko back? Who is going to qualify for the year-end finals on the women's side? Super, super fun whenever we have David on the pod. I know all of you listeners will enjoy that, so if you're not already, go listen to it over on our Great Shot podcast feed. Of course, this week we're joined by a bunch of fantastic guests on the Cracked Interviews podcast. Lau Verdu, the 2009 NCAA singles finalist and former University of Miami associate head coach. We were joined by 35-year head coach for Valparaiso men's tennis, Jim Doherty. We were also joined by ITA All-American singles champion, Champagne Future singles champion, Kalamazoo singles finalist, doubles champion, NCAA team champion, Ben Shelton on Friday. All fantastic interviews you can find on the Cracked Interviews podcast feed. All of that content available on our website, CrackedRackets.com. Of course, lastly, these podcasts are only made possible because of the support we get from all of you listeners, from our Cracked Rackets Patreon family, and of course, from our friends over at Tennis Point. You all know the deal by now, so I'll simply say this, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. We are immensely grateful for their continued support. The least we can do, ask you to support them as well. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, let's get to it. Talking about what is happening at the 2021 Indian Wells with the one and only Chris Otto. Joining us on the podcast today to help make sense of all the madness over the past few days at Indian Wells is now a returning champion here to our Crack Racket shows. You may know him as a contributor to Tennis Now, Tennis Majors, the U.S. Open, French Open, Tennis TV. You may know him as the voice of the Lucky Letcord podcast. I know him as the man with the best stick skills on all of tennis Twitter, my friend Chris Otto. Chris, welcome back to the show. How are you doing today? I'm, I'm really good. Thanks for having me, Alex. How are you? I, I am doing well. It is always a highlight to my day when I see you outside working on your, you know, again, dangling the puck, doing whatever you can do. It's just like, it's the little things, right? And to me, that those are some of my favorite vid- videos on Twitter. So thank you very much. I'm a two-sport guy. <laughs> and you notice I don't show my tennis videos because they're, they're not as good as my hockey videos. <laughs> So the reason why it appeals to me so much, I had a tennis coach uh, growing up who would say, I'm not a tennis player, Alex. I'm a hockey player who just was better at tennis. And so that was always seeped into uh, my tennis experience. So it is enjoyable. I feel like there's a big overlap. And I mean, obviously, there's a lot of Russian tennis players who uh, enjoy hockey as well. At least for me in Detroit, that was always the big overlap. A lot of hockey fans, a lot of tennis fans. I don't know if there's a broader connection, though, is there? There does seem to be an overlap, though, with Austin Matthews, who's you know, yeah. one of the best players in the game right now, has taken up hockey since he's been injured with a wrist injury. So yeah. he got really passionate about it. Yeah. 
and you, yeah, you do see it. And I think there's a connection maybe with the fast hands, the, the soft too. hands that are necessary in both sports where maybe hockey players are sort of attracted to what tennis players do out there. Mm-hmm. Plus, hockey, tennis, known for its fights. So it makes sense that there's a lot of overlap there. But of course, <laughs> that is not the reason we wanted to have you on the show today. I wanted to have you on to talk about all of the madness at Indian Wells. Now, it was the first Indian Wells men's singles draw since 2000 without Djokovic, without Federer, without Nadal. We entered the Indian Wells competition on the men's single side with no returning champions in the draw. There was no Dominic team. There was no Juan Martin Del Potro. It was going to be a first-time Indian Wells champion no matter what. That said, if I would have told you at the start of the tournament that our final four would be Grigor Dimitrov, Cam Norrie, Taylor Fritz, and Nicolas Basilashvili— You would have justifiably mocked me. And yet, that's where we find ourselves entering semifinal Saturday. I want to talk granularly, of course, about each of these individual players, each of these results. I want to get into a most improved conversation today as well. But let's just start big picture. We talk all the time here on these podcasts about the generational shift that's happening on tour. And with that generational shift will come results like these, right? And I guess my question to you is, is this result a byproduct of the larger generational shift, or is it just some post-U.S. Open funk, right? Because I don't want to confuse the post-U.S. Open stretch, which always gets weird with the, you know, with the broader shift I see occurring. That said, it's just like this is bullet point material for argument A of the broader shift. Yeah, I think we're going to see more results like this, Alex. Um, definitely in the next two, three, four, five years until it sort of stabilizes with some top dogs. We have the top dogs, Medvedev, Zverev, they lost. They were beaten. And it, and that's the beautiful thing about this. A lot of people are maybe wringing their hands saying, oh, look, it's going to be, it's going to be this, there's not going to be any leader. It's just going to be a big mess. It's going to be chaos. But to me, it spells opportunity for a player like Taylor Fritz to have a breakout moment like this absolutely beautiful if you're if you're wringing your hands and disappointed about the way that the top three seeds performed at indian wells you're missing the bigger picture here which is that now finally there are opportunities for players to make runs to semifinals and who knows whoever wins this title it's going to be a massive moment it wouldn't have happened if djokovic nadal and uh, Federer were in their prime in this tournament. And a lot of people, of course, would prefer to see those three at Indian Wells marching their way to the semifinals as they always typically would have done. But now it's an open door for a lot of things like this to happen. Yeah, guys underperformed. October has a lot to do with it, different conditions at Indian Wells. There are a lot of factors, I think. But but I think in general, and you probably agree, we're headed for more results that look a little bit more like this in, in the business end of tournaments on well, the men's side. The funny thing is sneakily, three of the four guys, I don't want to put Fritz in that category because his run here at Indian Wells is kind of, it is kind of a breakthrough run for Taylor. It's been one that's been looming, and we'll talk about that, but he's on his own. But the other three guys, if you actually take a look at their seasons, you know, Cam Norrie is one of four players with double digits quarterfinals on the year. I think it's him, it's it's Tsitsipas, it's, I want to say, Rublev, and one more whose name is slipping my mind right now, I believe. Let's see. I think I have it pulled up. The other guy, oh, it's Casper Root. Duh. That's the other one who, uh, you know, so many 250 success. That's the obvious name. So for Cam Norrie, you know, I think he's second right now or third after this Indian Wells in terms of total wins on the ATP Tour this season. He's been exceptional everywhere. And it does feel like of the people in the pole position to take advantage of some chaos at the top, it's not shocking to see him come through right to the semifinals. Ditto for, you know, Grigor Dimitrov, who it's worth remembering, Australian Open quarterfinalist this year. And yeah, in the moment, his loss to Karatsev seemed shocking. But, you know, eight months, nine months later, that loss makes much more sense with context. And you look overall on the season, he's 18-9 this year in hard court matches. He's ninth in break percentage with, you you know, 29.4% on hard court matches. He's been the same Grigor Dimitrov on hard courts now, four and six on the non-hard court surfaces. And maybe you get old, it's a little bit harder to move on things that aren't concrete. But, you know, for Grigor, again, he's always been a guy who when there's a little bit of chaos at the top with the right sort of conditions, the right sort of run, he can put himself in that position of play. And then the sneaky one is Nicholas Basilashvili. This is his eighth quarterfinal of the year. I think he's one of like four or five guys with multiple titles here this season, and he's done it across surfaces. 
So again, that's why when we're trying to make sense of all of the madness, and you brought up conditions, this is something I am curious, is Indian Wells, the, the word unique is overused because if something's unique, it's one of a kind. And multiple things can't all be unique. Otherwise, they're not unique. Uh, but I do think Indian, the Indian Wells court may be the most unique hard court on the ATP tour. I mean, Nur Sultan would like a conversation in this discussion. But just the way, you know, again, for <laughs> I don't want to say it's perfect for geriatric tennis because that's so rude. But, like, for a guy like Nicholas Baslashvili, who you're just – he's begging for an extra half second. That's all he wants. Or for Grigor Dimitrov, who at age 30, he still can get to top speed. But if you give him an extra half second, he looks that much quicker – I do think the surfaces play uh, – uh, this surface plays a particular role in some of the madness we've seen. At the same time, you know, three of the four guys, they're top ten in quarterfinals on the year. They have been that – or I guess or they have shown this sort of level all season long. Yeah, and Nori's the first one that comes to mind. He's been incredible. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely so l- let's start there. I'm curious because I get caught in our Crack Rackets bubble, and we love college tennis here, and we love Cam Nori here. And for those of you who don't know, I'm rocking some Michigan gear on the Zoom here as it's a Saturday. We're a week off for our Michigan football team, but you always got to rock the Wolverines on a Saturday morning. All of that said, Cam Nori once upon a time committed to the University of Michigan. I was actually there on his recruiting trip. That's a story we'll save for off mic. Um, but, you know, to see – I guess – what do you consider Cam Nori now is really my question. In your mind, is he a top 20 guy? The metrics suggest, you know, ELO ratings, points race, live rankings. Do you now consider him after this season one of the guys in the mix? I do. I do. I think he's earned the right to be considered as such. 45 and 20 on the year. I mean, he's just performing well and on all surfaces. I think if you look, I think he's 14 and 5 on clay this year. He was 24 and 18 lifetime on that surface, six and two on grass. He was never great on it. You'd think the Brits are always going to be solid on that surface. He was 11 and 11 on grass prior to this year. You know, what's funny about Nori is he might've had a better year. Had he not run into Nadal twice at the slams in the third round and then Federer at Wimbledon. Mm -hmm. And he acquitted himself nicely in all three of those matches. And I think he took a ton of experience out of it. So sometimes a loss can be a positive as we all know, those are really huge experiences for Nori. But I love his game. He's so accurate that he can implement a game plan because he can put the ball where he wants to. And it seems like when he draws up his game plan, it must be so much simpler for him because he can just execute. He say, I want to work this player's backhand. I want to work this pattern. He can actually do all those things and does do them. He's been phenomenal. And I think, is he going to be a mainstay in the top 10? I guess we'll have to wait and see. But what he's done this year is remarkable. He's actually in the picture for, for the race to Turin, and, and he deserves to be. What was so amazing, three three-set wins for him heading into that Schwartzman match and, you know, a physical three-set battle the day before with RBA. And Schwartzman, you know, I'd played a couple of three-setters, sure, during the week as well, but 0-2? Like, 0-2 over Diego Schwartzman in your first Indian Wells quarterfinal? It was absolutely remarkable and you know you know I love my clubs here Chris you know I like making you know up some funky stuff I've got my top 10 top 15 top 20 25 clubs updated and what that is for our listeners who are all too well aware at this point but you go to the tennis abstract stats leaderboard you can find hold percentage break percentage leaders for the season these are guys who rank top 10 15 20 25 etc in both hold and break percentage there are two guys who rank top 10 in both can you guess them i'm very certain you can top t- two guys that rank top 10 in hold well i guess nori's got to be one well, I, and hold I'm... and break percentage really so nori so this is 10. everyone no so it's not nori yet he's not top 10 in both we're not okay. there yet there are only two guys it's medvedev and djokovic that makes sense right that they're oh. the only two guys who rank top 10 in both hold and break percentage i feel like i test says it results say it rankings say it makes sense top mm-hmm. 15 club this year two guys Casper Ruud and Alex Zverev. You think about what they've done this season. It makes sense. Zverev's been exceptional. I would argue he's been on the level of Medvedev and Djokovic, but he doesn't have the Grand Slam title. You know, he does have the Olympics. He does have Cincinnati. He does have uh, whichever one of the clay court masters he won as well. For Casper Ruud, he's been the guy at the 250 level, right? And when you have that degree of success, you're just going to rack up big numbers, hold percentage, break percentage-wise. So I think these numbers bear out what we've seen 
Then you get to that next tier, top 20 guys. Tsitsipas finds himself in that club for the first time, which, given the struggles on his backhand return, indicative of his growth this season. It also makes sense that he's not top 15 because that backhand return still is a little bit vulnerable. Andre Rublev, top 20 club guy. Makes sense. Rafa would be a top 10 guy, top 15 guy if he played more. He just didn't this season. And then the outlier, which gets fun, is Ilya Ivashka who finds himself in the top 20 club now, but that's, you know, similar to Casper Rudish and kind of gets us to our most improved discussion. You look at the, and I had to cheat a little bit because Cam Norrie's 26th in hold percentage, Karatsev's 27th, but those are your two top 27 club guys. So again, there are 10 total players who rank top 27 in both hold and break percentage. Cam Norrie's one of them. Aslan Karatsev's one of them. Ilya Ivashka's one of them. Kasper Rud is one of them. For me, that's your shortlist for your most improved players of the 2021 season. And I think the numbers and the results bear that out. And that gets us into something else I wanted to talk about when I had you on the show today. And I explored this earlier in the week with Gil Gross as well. I want to pick as many minds as possible because I think it's a fascinating discussion this season. To you, Chris, what does it mean? And by the way, again, the takeaway from that entire rant, Cam Norrie, one of nine players ranked top 26 in both hold and break percentage. It's real, folks, and he's 26 in hold percentage, I believe ninth in break percentage. That's very, very good stuff. But in your mind, what does this most improved category mean? And for you, what's your shortlist? Okay. First of all, I like that discussion about the the hold and and, and the break list and top 10. I hadn't, I hadn't looked at that analytically that way, mm-hmm. so I'm glad you clued, clued me into it. And I wouldn't have been surprised by some of the top names, but some of the other names you listed, that's very cool. But um, improved, a lot lot of times I look at it on more simplistic terms. Okay. I look at ranking, of course, from the year before to the the year now, and then I look at breakout results, those kind of things. So like my shortlist for the top five improved, which you asked me to make up, is it includes a guy like Karatsev because he's 112. He's he's 112 in the world in January. He's got, what, three ATP tour matches to, to his name. He hasn't done anything on tour. And since then, of course, we know it started with the semifinal of the Australian Open, but he's a top 25 player right now. He's got a title under his belt. Um, it's, he's got 28 ATP wins. So it means, what is that, eight or nine or 10 times more wins than he had in his career. And he's a 28-year-old player. So to me, I put him as number one because it's just ridiculous. I'm not sure how you're measuring it analytically and, and how you see it. But the other guy I got on there is Casper Ruud because he was yeah. always a good, very good player, and we knew he was going to be. However, we didn't know he was going to expand his empire to the hard courts, and he has done that. And he has risen from 27 to 10. Again, I'm looking at the ranking maybe rather simplistic, but I see him as so vastly improved in so many areas. And you mentioned it, the the, the the way that he's holding serve, the way that he's breaking serve, seems like he's adjusted what he does on his return games. He's a little more open to changing his position. He's just thinking the game so much better. And, of course, with the weapons he has, his backhand's a lot better, too, let's face it. Um, Carlos Alcaraz came from nowhere. I don't know if it's an improvement. I think he's always been just waiting yes. in the wings and ready to be an incredible player. But when a guy steps onto the tour and starts to get the experiences and becomes the youngest U S open quarter finalist in history. Yeah. He was, we should have expected it. So maybe he's not a good fit for, for me going from 141 in the world to 38 now is an improvement. Again, I'm going to rely on our ranking and then Nori's my, my next one. I mean, I mean, he's just learned to win on, on tour now, like at a, such a maddeningly consistent level. He's so good against any type of player. It's, it's just he just matured on, on all fronts, and it's it's remarkable. And then Jensen Brooksby is my last guy because he had barely just cut his teeth at tour level. He was had a year off, had injuries. Nobody was thinking about Jensen Brooksby when this year started. He was outside of the top 300, and now he's a viable top 50-type player. He's ranked 70, but everybody's expecting him to continue on this trend and, and move even further up the rankings, and he's shown us so much ability and such a unique eye-opening game that American fans are just basically freaking out about what his upside <laughs> is, both freaking out and trying to figure out what his upside is. Well, so those I, are my five guys. And there, for the record, I when I come up with my short list, of course, it ends up with like 13 or in reality in this one, I think there's, let's see, 19 different names on my short list right now. And I break it down by tier because, and for the record, I don't think rankings jumps are a simplistic way of looking at it because I do think that gets to 
again, there are degrees of improvement, right? There's going from outside the top 100 to establishing yourself not only as a top 100 player, but as a top 35 player, the way Aslan Karatsev has done. And that jump might be the single most difficult, well, it's not the single most difficult, but that's the jump every player chases throughout the duration of their career. And Aslan Karatsev's done it this season. And to your point, uh, he while he had had a ton of success down the home stretch of the Challenger uh, Tour in 2020, even that scene came in, uh, seemingly came out of nowhere. And so for him, just yeah. these 15 months he's put together, yeah, it, it's remarkable. It's ridiculous. And so I agree. He's got to be in there. He's also a doubles whiz now. Yeah, he's just he, yeah Olympics as well. That's a really good point. Uh, as you, you should factor that in. He's he and that is part medals. of his improvement mm-hmm. for no. sure. I don't think he knew how to play doubles. Yeah, exactly. Prior, prior to this year, it's so smooth, right? I just feel like he's gonna fit, he could fit in anywhere, in any game, in any time, and it just works. And you're just like, how? Where was this? Like sometimes it just takes a little bit longer. But I guess my thing is why he's third on my list and. I think that's probably lower than most people have him behind two guys you mentioned, Kasparud and Cam Norrie, is because I think the jumps they made are just a degree more difficult. You want to go from top 35, that's great. You know what's even harder than being top 35? Top 20. And what Cam Norrie's done, established himself as the highest-ranked British male player. He's number 20 right now in the live rankings. But more impressively, I believe last time I looked, he was 12th in the points race. Currently, yeah, 12th in the points race. Paris still on the board. I mean, he'd have to win Indian Wells and really make a run, you know, in Paris to jump Hubie, to jump Kasparud. But he's put himself on the short list for the year-end finals in Turin. And that's, yeah. an inc- and, you know, that is one of the most difficult things to do. Now, the guy who may even be more impressive is, to your point, Kasparud who is the shortlist for those final two spots uh, in the race to Tareen, who will have to have something go pretty wrong for himself and have everything break perfectly for one of the guys below him to be surpassed and not clinch his spot. And you're right. Kasparu is a guy who had a ton of junior success. And, you know, by, what, 19, 20 years old, he made that final in Houston. And, you know, he's a guy who quietly, you're right, like quarterfinals for him I believe in both Cincinnati and Canada this year right and he has the San Diego title as well now he didn't make a second week of a grand slam and that is one of the things to watch for in 2022 but he did it every other week he was one of if not the most consistent guy week in week out throughout this ATP season and so, again, it's a degree of jump. Like, that's what makes this race so difficult is what is the more valuable? What is, mo- you know, what is a higher degree of difficulty in terms of improvement? Is it, you know, the week-in, week-out consistency of Kasparud, who's probably been a little bit better on average in the bigger events than Cam Norrie? Is it Cam Norrie who's right on that category as well? Or is it a guy like Aslan Karatsev who, you know, has made that jump from challenger levels to surfaces you know quarterfinals now I do think you start to look at it quarterfinals again Norris made 10 Rude's made 11 Karts have made four you look at semifinals uh Cam Nori now has made seven you look for uh Casper Rude I believe he's made eight uh semifinals on the year for Aslan Karatsev <laughs> he's made three it's it is a three-man race and to the other names you mentioned and I, I know I'm talking here for a while I, I apologize but I have a – in my fourth-place category, I have a list of five guys. I honestly think Sinner, FAA, Alcaraz, Brooksby, Corda, that young player jump that we wait for them all to make, they all made some degree of that jump this year. And why it's a little bit lower for me than those first three guys is, to your point, it was expected, right? Young guys get better. That's how tennis works. And those guys always had the talent. It's just starting to manifest itself Fifth is Ivashka, who's just done what those first three guys have done, just a little bit less. Um, but I like I, I guess to you again, what is the most difficult improvement to make? Is it going from you know outside the top 100 to top 50? Is it going from around the top 50 to top 30 like Nori's done, or is it going top 30 to top 10 like Rude's done? I think that is the conversation. I think some of the the higher ones are harder to make the nor the nori and the rude transition i'm not sure which one of those would be harder but yeah you tend to plateau when you when you get up to a certain level and people are aware of you that you're dangerous out there they game plan for you they've seen you you're inside the top 50 and and to make another to to get up top 20 top 10 you've got to win some tournaments you've got to reach some finals you've got to do it in big tournaments so for me that's the much harder move i do want to make one correction that to you which is rare i think this is the first time but casper rude 
made the second week of the Australian Open You're on right, a hard court. Yeah. Part of this conversation, he then retired, I think, in that in that match, which was disappointing, maybe the low point of his season in some ways. But um, that's another um, example of how well he's done. The only second week of a slam he made was on hard courts this year. He's improved so dramatically on this, on those surfaces. But yeah, back to your original question, I think it's harder to get from you know, say 40 to, to 15, uh, 27 to 10 is an amazing jump for Casper Ruud. Mm-hmm. No, I agree with you. And I guess why Nori, I weigh slightly above Ruud is because I, to uh, the larger point that we keep coming back to, I expected it from Ruud. I really did. Like, again, this is a guy who's had the pedigree and it's been a matter of, I guess, when more so than if. I think for Nori, it was a little bit more if-centric because as we talked about uh, with his game, you know, there's not the obvious weapon. He's It's a little Brooksby-ish and just kind of death by high percentage play. He's going to go cross, cross, cross until the space is open down the line. And then he's going to take that down the line space. He's going to, you know, again, it's such a condensed backhand backswing. I'm doing it on the zoom as you see it. It's just so simple and yet it works. It does. That's so, such a reliable shot. And, and he's he's very quick. He covers the court so well. He thinks the game so well. He mu- he must be a nightmare to face for, for for really any guys. In fact, I found myself many times this year going, how does a guy take like handle Cameron Nori? Like and we saw Rafa do it twice at the slams, and you're saying that's what it takes. All, like kind of like this flawless, this and just just all out attack and this ability to be so aggressive and to seize on every opportunity and to hit lines. And there are very few players that can do it consistently. Mm-hmm. It feels like you either have to, you know, again, be well, you have to do two things. You have to be able to match his physicality and you still have to have a weapon to hit him off the court. And it's just to be able to do both of those things, that's really hard to do. But again, to get back to the stats, and I appreciate, you know, I think the metrics, the top 10, 15, 20, 25 club, it's just to, you know, I try to say if the guys in those clubs make sense to the results we're seeing, then the numbers make sense, the results make sense. Casper Ruud's one of four players to rank top 15 in both hold and break percentage. Let's not sell that short. One of four guys. And even if it's at the 250 level predominantly, that is a degree of excellence, a degree of dominance that you just don't see that frequently. And while, again, for Nori and Karatsev, who are both two of 10 guys to be top 27 in each, that's super impressive. But there have been shades of elite from Casper. I think you might have just convinced me. I don't even know if you said it was Rude over Nori, but I may have to switch my argument because what Rude has done this season is particularly special. I would say he has. And, and to me, you're talking about improvement, I think. And why is he in the rank so high in, in his ability to hold? Because he did improve his serve. He's, he's looking for things, uh, ways to improve it. I think he changed his toss, got a little more pop off of it. He plays such a big game. I mean, it's oh, it's simple. The challenge for him is Yes, his backhand is vastly improved, but he wants to get on his forehand as much as possible, and that's how he operates during his matches. And he's found a way to do it more often and with a greater degree of comfort, giving himself that first strike ability and an even higher percentage. And so he's he's thinking through what he needs to do, improving what he needs to improve, and that's why he's got those numbers you mentioned. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And now I suppose to get back to Nori, again, top 27 club, top 10 in break percentage, that's certainly impressive, although you do feel like for him to make the jump next season from top 20 to top 10, it's going to be the serve. And you look at his first serve win percentage, it's a career high for him this season. You look uh, for Nori, what he's been able to accomplish. I believe that number for the year, I don't want to get it wrong here, uh, 71.4%, that's up 1.7% above his career average. He's holding 81% of the time, that's about 3% above his career average. It's continued to get better, and he's talked about that's been something he's focused on uh, but you do it's probably the serve and I could watch him hit lefty slice serves out wide on the ad side all day it is maybe the most beautifully just aesthetic and perfectly hit serve this side of Federer um, but it, it, it's again Cam Norrie superstar here this season do you think there's more ceiling to scrap like I, I do wonder that's I guess this is where we'll end the Norrie conversation is heading into 2022 what's the next thing for him yeah, I mean, get get better at what he's already improved, like you said. Yeah. You know, just just fine tune all those elements. Keep grinding for for Cam. It's about just that work ethic and that attitude and making it hard on his opponents. I think he can scrap his way up to the top ten. It'll be tough to go higher than that. But 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 he, you know, he's one of those guys that just impresses you with his work ethic, with his humility, 
and the improvement on all surfaces is, is going to play a huge role. And if, if he can keep improving on the, on the clay and on the grass like he's done, there's a chance for it. Mm-hmm. Are you an award voter? For, uh, I've never voted for ATP awards, no. But WTA, yeah. But, oh, I want to so, get on so, that. I, I'm desperate to get That is like on my short list of things I'd like to have someday. ATP and WTA awards voter is on the show. Yeah, yeah. So I'm working my way there, but it's a fascinating race. And it's funny just on the women's side for the most improved, like it's a shame Krejcikova is going to win the award just because she has to, because there yeah. are so many players like a Jabour, like a Bedosa. I mean, you can go, uh, Rabak and you know, I can go up and down. Honestly, Sabalenka this year has been freaking awesome. Like yeah. the, the race on the women's side, if it wasn't just Krejcikova, it would be this crowded. Yes, pretty neat, right? Owens yeah. Owens has been remarkable. Now now that she's cracked the top ten, of course she's she's up there. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of players that have had remarkable seasons, and then you, you're like you're looking at Bedosa, you're like, how many top twenty wins? Ten top twenty wins. Yeah. Owen Owen five against the top twenty prior to this season, yeah. and now ten. And now I think ten. she's like ten and three too. It's not just like oh, I'm ten and eleven. No, 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 ten and three. That's just yeah, it's it's remarkable, but. You know, again, uh, with all of that said, another guy I wanted to talk to you about today in particular whose run has been the standout performer, and we said we were going to leave him to the side for now, and we'll get back to Greek or Basilashvili at the end, but let's talk about what Taylor Fritz has done this week. And because when we had you on the podcast pre-US Open, we talked about the American men, and we talked about their upside and what we thought they were capable of, and the fact that there were 14 of them in the ATP Top 100, and the fact that we have now multiple young generations, and of course, heading into the Open, it was Brooksby, Nakashima, Korda, taking all of our attention. Here at Indian Wells, it's been the original next-gen guys. And you can go up and down the list. Now, Opelka's first-round win over Daniel was super impressive. You were a bit disappointed with that Dimitrov loss until you now realize Grigor Dimitrov is into the semifinals of this event. You look for Tiafo. I thought he was excellent in wins. He beat Korda, if memory serves me correct. He also beat Benoit Paire both straight sets uh, before he got knocked out. I mean, you look at what Tommy Paul was able to do. And, you know, the Paul-Nori match was exceptional. And for Tommy to just... The physicality he played with to knock out Rublev in three sets, he was excellent. And then, of course, still left in the draw is Taylor Fritz, who has always been one of the guys. Since, I think it was 2014, he makes that Junior Wimbledon semifinal run. Of course, that Junior Wimbledon happened to be won by an American, Noah Rubin, beat out a fellow American, Stefan Kozlov, in the final. I think that was 2014. You guys can fact check me, but I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. Uh, Of course, you know, for Fritz that next year, Junior French Open Finals, knocked out by Tommy Paul. Goes to the Junior U.S. Open, wins the title. Then goes on this incredible run. I think it was Fairfield and Bakersfield, whatever, two California challengers. I forget what cities they were in. He wins two of them back-to-back. And then, you know, the next January, February, whatever month it is, he makes the final of an ATP 250 in Memphis. And it just felt like it was on. And if you've watched Taylor Fritz play, hitting a tennis ball has never been an issue for him. The serve, it's, the uh, you know, it's not my words, but I've heard others, well, it is my words, I've heard people say it's the most natural American serve since Sampras, and it really is, he's just one of those guys blessed with one of those shoulders, you see the way he can drive pace on the forehand, how easy the backhand is, now the volleys have been a struggle, but for me, it's been the physicality. That's always been the missing piece for Taylor, like, respectfully, some people are blessed with fleet feet, he was not. Like, that is not going to be his thing. He's not going to be a track meet superstar. But in these conditions, on this hard court, with his serve, Chris, he's looked elite. Like, I don't know another word for it. The, the tennis part has been able to shine because the physicality's been there. And Taylor Fritz hitting a tennis ball looks just about as pretty as anyone. It's funny that it all started with a little bit of a beatdown of Nakashima. Yeah, you know that we talk about the twenty and twenty-one year old guys that you just mentioned pushing the older guys a little bit. I asked Taylor about that this week. He didn't make much of it, but he said, "Yeah, it's a little bit weird. I feel, you know, being a little bit older." And these guys are really, really excellent players, and you know, there is a competitive element to it. Whether they're getting along great, they're all helping each other. But I think the guys that are twenty-three and twenty-four want to make sure that they um, don't get lost in the conversation. And Taylor certainly not lost this week. 
I mean, the wins he's racked up have been a pretty amazing, right? Berrettini was a big one. And then to back it up with Sinner, that was really impressive just to come off those high emotions, playing in California, feeling it and being able to deliver in the clutch. And then yesterday was just remarkable. I mean, yes, Alexander Zverev had his issues late in that match, but Taylor's second set was just something that was just, just amazing how he got himself back in that match. He's all the things you mentioned, the power that he hits the ball with are just crazy good. And everybody wants to talk about his movement. You, last time we talked, we talked a little bit about him getting out of the corners, his balance after hitting one shot and transitioning into the other. He's aware of the fact that he needs to work about on that stuff. And I think we talked this week a little bit about he has this vision of himself, how he's going to be as a player when he's 26, 27, 28. He believes he'll be at his peak then. Right now, it's just the tip of the iceberg for Taylor Fritz in his mind, but he's showing us now that he's pretty much got what he needs to compete. I think he should maybe move those years up and realize that he can peak next year if he wants to. He could even peak this weekend. But yeah, he, he he's playing so well, and I think when you see a player get in the situation that he's in right now, which is being in California, embracing it, kind of owning the moment, just just kind of like having that 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 vibe about him, like that I'm gonna I'm gonna be going for it. I think the key lesson of the match against Zverev is that he was aggressive, that he was courageous, that he used what he has as his weapons against, against Zverev, that he didn't back down at all, that he played big tennis in big moments. And I think if he can dictate and do that kind of thing, then he's going to have better results. It's so interesting because Taylor's, and I know it's tough. I wish, you know, again, I would ask him this question the next time I would, but I, I, it's something we've talked about with him before He's a tennis player's tennis player, and I know that's not a quantifiable thing, but if you're making a short list of guys you are absolutely certain are going to maximize their potential, Taylor Fritz is on that short list because this is a guy, simply put, wants to be a professional tennis player, and of course he comes from a tennis-playing family. His mom was, I believe, top 10, I want to say, former player, or certainly in the mix, and his dad was a former professional as well, and you know, for Taylor, he has been a top junior. He's been in the mix uh, for it since he was, you know, again, 15, 16 years old. And, you know, as such, he's not afraid of these guys. He went down swinging yesterday against, or just, you know, he didn't go down. He went through, got through the match just swinging throughout because Zverev did get tentative, to your point. And yes, Zverev had a match point, but on that match point, it was that backhand slice error from Zverev in a long physical rally. He just kind of gave out in the end. Taylor kept hitting through and then you know again given his work ethic you know movement is the one thing you can control and yes there is a ceiling to how good every person can be in a mover as a mover and genetics come into that fact but look taylor's six five you know six four six five the length is there for him i'm actually that's a fascinating answer i really enjoy hearing that that in his mind 26 27 28 where he's going to play his best tennis because if you've watched any of his off-season work and you've looked into what he does, you know, again, the work he puts in in the gym, that's been such a big component for him. And that shows, you know, again, a self-awareness of, look, I'm not there physically yet. I know I still have work to go, but I'm on the pathway there. And again, from a from a tennis perspective, you know, he's going to be a top 20. His hold percentage, 81.7. That's 25th right now amongst top 50 players for the season. Uh, the past two years, he was over that number. He was at 83, 84%. That's not going to be the issue. The serve is there. The thing for him, the break percentage. He's at 19.7 this season, which is above his career average. But when you're breaking serve fewer than 20% of the time, you're going to be, you know, outside the top 40 in terms of returners. And that's just not good enough if you want to be an elite player, if you want to be a top 20 guy consistently. And part of that is just a byproduct of, again, the movement. It's tracking down that first ball when, you know, when that plus one ball goes behind you or it goes to the open court. Taylor in the outer thirds, that's been the struggle. And that break percentage manifests that. Uh, it shows that. But but it just yeah. – it does feel very improvable, right? Like, again, it feels like it's a physical thing. It's not a tennis thing. Yeah. It, does, it feels like it's – um really thinking um, tactically about movement, about balance, about transition, yeah. really sophisticated elements of the movement could help him, like you said, on the return, because because on the return is when you're on the defense and where you've got to be explosive and where you've got to be on point and you've got to get your feet set. And it, you don't have to do that much 
in terms of you don't have to be the hardest hitter to, to make your, your return game improve. You just got to be able to play with depth and a little bit of clarity and, and get to balls and time them well. So, yeah, I think that's a, that's an area that he can certainly improve in, right? Yeah, that return, that return number will have to come up. Mm-hmm. And I do think it will, though, right? Because, I mean, you saw it yesterday against Zverev and all week long. This surface has slowed down opponent's serve. I mean, he does it against Berrettini. Sinner's serve has, is a work in progress as well, but he got clean looks against Sinner. He got clean looks yesterday against Zverev. From a hands perspective, from a contact point perspective, I don't think the actual return of serve is the struggle for Taylor. I think it's the second ball. I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, I'd agree. I would yeah. agree. I, I guess that it, that it all could improve. I mean, the numbers say that, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe it's also just the tactics of what ball to hit yes. when. And that's always such a huge question for these guys, you know, how to how to get it right and what and also in a matchup basis, what am I going to play against which player? What could potentially get me at, to neutral in these rallies so that I can then take over and possibly win these points, mm-hmm. get these breaks? With what we've seen in 2022 and or 2021, excuse me, uh, what are you expecting in 2022 from the Fritz, from the Tiafo, Tommy, Riley group? I think quietly they all got better this season. Like, I actually think it was a big year for that group of guys, and you look at it now. Look, they're all starting to turn 23, 24, 25 years old. That is typically when you ascend into the prime of your career. Riley makes the final uh, in Canada. Taylor's into a semifinal here. My friend, former tennis Twitter staple, Joe Kelly, Jonathan Kelly, no longer on tennis Twitter, but still. Where is Jonathan? Oh, it's a story for another time. Don't get me going. This is a 10-minute tangent. Uh, I bother him every day. I'm like, come back on the pod. Come back on the pod. And I think I've guilted him. So for the past three years, we've done State of the Unions for the men's and women's American tennis, where we're at after each season, make predictions for the next year. It's, a, it's actually a Thanksgiving tradition, and I think I've guilted him into doing it again this season, but we'll see. Mm-hmm. So fingers crossed. But he texted me, there are only two countries with multiple players right now. I, hold on. Let me look up the official stat. I don't want to get it wrong because if you're quoting Jonathan Kelly, you better quote Jonathan Kelly correctly. But here we go. Canada and the USA will be the only country with multiple players under 25 in the ATP Top 30. Canada and the USA will also be the only country with multiple players under 25 in the WTA top 30. Mm. I mean, again, it's a good time to be an American tennis fan. It's not a great time, but it's a good time, I think, heading into 22. Yeah, no, it sets up nicely to your question. Um, I think everybody has a chance to improve incrementally again next year. Fritz, of course, can go higher. He, he's such a hard worker. He's so diligent. That's the first point you made about them. He wants to be a professional tennis player. He wants to un- turn over every rock and get the most out of himself, and I think he will do that. I think he's going to get a lot out of what happened with his surgery and recovering and getting back to Wimbledon, just this kind of like superhuman mental toughness, physicality to his this sort of aura that he's got about himself now. Where he just love, he wants to embrace the physical grind, the suffering. I think that will only help him. Well, Pelka's been amazing this year. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's cracked the top twenty. He's he's the number one American, right? I mean, he's improved his forehand. He's he he's sort of just getting comfort on other surfaces. The the, the semifinal in Rome was massive. I think he's he can only go higher. Tiafo has won some huge matches. I look at his ranking and I, I don't quite understand why it's so low, but I think he's got three massive wins. Sitsipas at Wimbledon, Rublev at the U.S. Open, a win over Shapovalov this summer. He's really embracing the big stages. He just needs to back up these wins and kind of be, be able to get a little deeper into some... I think it's going to happen for him pretty soon where he's going to get deeper, make a big run at a big event, maybe a Masters or a Slam, get, a, get back into the quarters and maybe even further... Um, who haven't I mentioned? Tommy Paul steadily improving, looked great this week. I mean, he, we know how gifted he is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a matter of maybe for him, he needs to embrace the suffering and go go into the Taylor Fritz school a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Shot selection and I think relying less on athleticism and, and more on just percentages would be nice for him. But these guys all have a lot of potential, and I think the thing we'll harp on always is that the fact that now the the Cordas of the world and the Brooksby's of the world are pushing them, it could change the dynamic a little bit and maybe create a little more sense of urgency for them to produce. Mm 
Yeah, I also do want to say I think it's a very marketable group. Like between, obviously, you're not going to find a more charismatic human than Francis Tiafo. You're not going to find a more creative human than Riley Opelka. You're not going to find a more subtly handsome human than Tommy Paul. And then you're not just going to have that, you know, that slick hair, traditional tennis grind. Uh, dare I say, then Taylor Fritz, who just feels like again, yeah, exactly, plucked him out of the country clubs, um, and just. I, obviously, then you get the next generation as well, Korda, who's the legacy, and you get Nakashima, and you get Brooksby. It's just – it's a really fun group. It really is. I, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to them. I do think Tommy's the interesting one. It feels like there's a world where Tommy pops, where he just sort of takes David Goffin's spot as the jack-of-all-trays, just kind of like very smooth around the corners, across surfaces, round of 16s everywhere – feels like that's the best version of Tommy. Like, to your point, he's not there yet, but I think we got a glimpse of it here at Indian Wells. And, look, he's making a push towards the top 50. I know that's his goal for the year end, to be inside that top 50, not have to play Masters qualifying in 2022. Hopefully he's able to achieve that. And, you know, again, Stefano Tsitsipas, one first-round loss here this season. It was to Francis Tiafo at Wimbledon. Like, that speaks yeah. to Tiafo's a big match player. He always has been, always will be, looked great here uh, at Indian Wells. But I think, again, more broadly, positive. Again, I, I guess we'll end this conversation here. Positive, right, for these Americans and for Fritz. He could win this thing. That would be remarkable for him. Yeah. Just something to build on because Taylor's got written. He's run into the wall at the slams the Oh, and seven third rounders. He's been knocking on the door for so many years and been right around the same ranking, uh, but he's gone. Oh, and seven at the third round of the slams. It's got to be tough on the confidence. And five of those matches were against top 10 players. Not easy at all. A lot of learning I'm sure has been done in those matches and they're motivating him to go even higher, but to, to have this breakthrough, I think maybe we'll just let him see, like have this vision of himself, how he performed down the stretch in meaningful moments against Zverev to close out that match. Zverev's a world-class talent. Taylor was the one with the cool down the stretch. He's the one that executed. He's the one that knew what to do and how to perform on a big stage. These intangibles could pay off for him, definitely. But I want to I want to stop and, and have you educate me mm-hmm. and the listeners a little more on Tommy Paul. What is great about Tommy Paul's game and what does Tommy Paul maybe need to improve? Because I'm sure you have an opinion on it and I'd like to hear it. <laughs> Well, you know, uh, I don't. I forget who this quote is from, but opinions are like <laughs> so everyone's got one. So you know, of course, I've got an opinion uh, on Tommy Paul. Um, look, I think for Tommy, who by the way is part of that 2015 generation, 2015 was the best. So 20 that's smack dab when I'm in the grind, reading Colette Lewis every day, watching every zoo tennis video, watching every <laughs> challenger match, all of it. That was the year. For American juniors, whether it's, you know, again, what Kozlov was doing, what, you know, Francis was starting to do, and they played the 2015 Kalamazoo final, five-set final, arguably the best match in Kalamazoo history. Um, There's just so much excitement across American junior level, all of it spearheaded by what the 97s were doing, Fritz, Opelka, Tommy Paul, and all three of them take junior slams that year. Tommy wins the French Open, Riley wins uh, junior Wimbledon, and then Taylor ends up winning junior U.S. Open. And there was a really good match. uh, Tommy plays Felix in the junior U.S. Open that year, and it's a three-set match. And Felix, at that point, 14-15, was still the youngest person to be doing all of these different things, and Tommy beat him, and it was like, okay— so this was this is real for Tommy. He's the guy right now in American Juniors, and just you know that Kalamazoo, all of those guys make the quarterfinal round, and it's crazy just how the the level. And the point being, Tommy's been one of those guys. But to your point, there's been different injuries and just different things that have slowed him down. But since the French Open Challenge, I want to say that was 2019. He wins a challenge. Uh, it was either wins back to back. I think he does win back to back challengers. Wins that wild card into the French Open and kind of has been, you know, a top 100 guy since then, it's the fluidity for Tommy. It's that everything just looks so easy on a tennis court, and you're not going to find a more fluid mover in and out of corners, and you're not going to find it across surfaces as well. I mentioned junior French Open champ. That fluidity translates to clay courts. He played 
I don't. I th- it was either last year's French Open or this year's. I think it was this year's. The five set match he played against Casper Ruud was an exciting, you know, extraordinary level of tennis. And Casper's one of the ten best guys on clay courts. And Tommy was right there with him. And just, you know, again, it's it's that he has the athleticism and the fundamentals to match anyone on the ATP tour. The better the opponent, the better the Tommy Paul you get. You seem to get. I think he's maybe it's him and Francis one and two as the best American volleyers in tennis. He's just really he's really solid at the net. Hits it. You know, there's an ad side kick serve he can hit when he wants to juice it up. That will get you off the court. That will open just an easy plus one forehand to the open court. All of the plays are obvious as well. The problem is, and you nailed it square on the head, it's the shot selection. It's that guys who can do A, B, C, D, and E don't know what to go with for the majority of the match, don't know how to make things easier for themselves. And I think for Tommy, he's always been his biggest enemy. It's just it's the inconsistency match in, match out. Okay. I feel like I see Tommy play, and he makes some shots because he enjoys being an athlete on the court. Yes. He'll hit his forehand squash shot and slide into it, and it'll look beautiful. And I think he kind of gets like kind of, sort of enjoys doing certain shots that might not be the, the best shot because it feels more athletic. It feels like the way you should play tennis when you're having fun, when you're in full flow. And it's not the more practical kind of shot that might not be as enjoyable to play at that certain moment in time. But anyway, that's a bit of an aside. Watching Tommy Paul against team on Longwin in Paris, I think it was 2019 or 18, push him and compete with him. And that was when Dominic Team was really emerging as a force. And it, I think it was a first round match or a second round match. I was like, what is up with Tommy Paul? This guy is hanging. And they were, it was really impressive tennis on a clay court. To that point, not to cut you off, but it, so it was Team in, 28, uh, in 2019. It was Rude in 2020. This year was four sets with Medvedev. That's the other match. I was like, I'm missing one. And that, you're right. Past three years, he's looked great on clay. Yeah. There's a lot of upside with Tommy Paul. Mm-hmm. Like, no. The golf fan comparison was interesting. Can you elaborate on that before we close the door on this? No, I, it's the fluidity, right? It's that David Goffin's not going to wow you with anything, except for when he's in the outer thirds and he hits that forehand on the run right by you and he just beats you with his athleticism and he beats you to the spot. That's Tommy Paul, right? He beats you to the spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you look at him, again, hold percentage, break percentage-wise, career averages 76.9, 22.2. They're fine. They're not great. They're fine. Mm-hmm. He's he's just he's solid across both wings. He doesn't do anything exceptionally well yet because I think he can do a lot of things very well. And so yeah. that 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 would be it for me. It's just like again, the numbers kind of say, you know, he's 43 and 48 in his career in ATP level matches or now I guess with the wins he got this week, 46 and 49. Um that feels about right. Like that that really does. Big win against Rublev. Very big win, and he had Nori. Like they were right there. That he could have won that match, and then we we would have started the pod as Tommy Paul, the most improved player on tour, and the answer would have been no. But we would have started it with it. Um, but yeah. no, again, uh, should be super exciting. And then you know, last guys we wanted to talk about. I mean, Basilashvili, who of course faces serious allegations off the court, and that's a discussion we've had on this podcast before, so listeners are familiar with it, but. From a tennis perspective, again, he has clicked this week. There's no denying that. He's playing extraordinarily well. Uh, but, of course, the story of the tournament has probably been the comebacks Grigor Dimitrov has pulled off. I mean, you look for him down a set in 4-1 to Daniil Medvedev. <laughs> and, you know, yesterday against Hubi, it's just, you know, he loses a first set. And he's talking about, I'm playing with dead legs. And yet he, in the end, 7-6 in the third with the victory. What do you make of Grigor's week? Hey, you know, again, of the lost gen, I guess, in the time of openings. If I would have told you six years ago that Grigor Dimitrov was winning the 2021 Indian Wells, you'd have been like, that makes total sense. Like, yeah, at that point, he'll be the best player in the world. <laughs> Obviously, that wasn't the trajectory we got to. It was a circuitous path, but yeah. here we are. He's He's been amazing this this week, and I think that watching him play – for me is just stylistically i just really enjoy it it's interesting that he's now 30 and he's working with dante bottini and he's concentrating on grinding a little bit more because i watch his game and i say it's so physically demanding to do what he does athletically this the explosive movement the slides the sprints he's like a contortionist out there and i feel like 
maybe he's at the point of his career where he'd want to be more aggressive and shorten points, but he's going in the other direction. He's doing it well. I think the key to his success, and I asked him about this and he didn't, he, he went off on another tangent completely, but he said he was pain free. He needs to be really 100% with his body, I think, to play the kind of tennis he does. Like that volley that he hit that was one of the, the viral moments of the tournament where he slid and skid marks across half of the midcourt and he knocks off a perfectly executed volley. When he's playing like that, it's just ridiculous. It's moving to watch. He's got an He's just so talented. And I think there's always going to be room for Grigor Dimitrov to perform this way. It just has to, the stars have to align. His body has to feel perfect. His mindset has to be good. Uh, you, you can't tell me that he doesn't enjoy being in Southern California. He's the kind of a guy that vibes off these sort of things and that brings out the best in him. He's looked amazing. I think, I don't know how the heck he got out of that Medvedev match. That was, yeah. that's going to be, that's going to be one of the matches of the season when we look back on it, but but yeah, Gregor, why not Gregor for this title? And uh, he's he's made this tournament certainly very interesting. And he's just one of those guys you root for, such a good, humble soul. And, and, um, but as game-wise, it seems like he's kind of got his structure and he's he's got it in a place where it needs to be right now. He's playing very patient. He's very consistent. I guess that's one of the things that'll plague him when he, he just seems to be measuring up the ball and hitting, hitting everything really well. And that, but to me... I might be the only person saying this, but I think it's because he's at 100% healthy. And, and I think when you see bad results from Grigor Dimitrov, when you look at a match and go, he's just so playing so flat or just missing so much, it's because his body is not, not backing him. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's a great take, and it's worth reminding everyone. He seriously struggled after coming down with COVID. He talked, he's talked openly about how difficult it was for him to just regain his footing and, you know, again, find that gear uh, match in, match out. But he found it against Medvedev he found it against Hubi and I mean the backhand slice I it's it's working this week like it is the outlier on on this surface it's the shot that no one else remaining in the field can hit and you see a theme Vasilishvili he plays big uh, obviously Taylor Fritz he plays big Nori's the exception I suppose but he brings that element of physicality so I guess there's the two camps there's the physicality of Nori Dimitrov what they have brought point in point out and then there's just the big hitters in Fritz and Vasilishvili who have thrived with the slowing down of the surface give them that much more time to get into their plays <laughs> I agree with you in the outer thirds of the court and I, I know it was floating around earlier this week Grigor's a ballerina right it was the the ballerina swinging the uh swinging the racket that's Grigor just the, some of the some of the stuff he can do on the run are just it's so magnificent yeah i mean these are it's it's just the word elite comes to mind when you yeah. see him stretching out and hitting a hitting a forehand squash shot it's not just that he's getting the ball back and it's floating high and it's something that somebody can just then tee off and hit a winner he hits a mean squash shot with purpose that can actually be confounding and the slice you talked about it's so consistent it has such depth and bite it's it's beautiful he's got he's got all the shots his one hand backhand it's gorgeous his forehand's a weapon he's a big server um he's just good this is he's beautiful he, he's actually beautiful he's aesthetically as beautiful as it gets on a tennis court right now i would say mm-hmm. i would the reason why i think nike stuck with him through thick and thin is it's just like this is what you want tennis to represent this is nike tennis just the fluidity the athleticism all of it like i the, the brand and the and the tennis you see i i think the two that is <laughs> there is a nice uh Symbiosis uh, was that the word? Did I did I get it right? You, symbiosis you, or symbiosis? Synergy or, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> but no, I I agree, and I do think. I mean, he's the guy who's won a Masters title. He's the guy who's won the year end title. Is he the favorite entering Championship Weekend? It's tough to say, right? It's I mean, so it's... tough. I have no idea who's going to win this, Chris. I think I'm two and twelve with my picks the past three days. It's hard to see Grigor ha- hanging with Cam Norrie's consistency, to be honest. Uh, that's that to me is a toss up. Um, looking back, looking at the lower half, Fritz and Basilashvili is a tough one to call as well. Basilashvili not with much experience this level, hitting the ball well, so well, so ridiculously well. It's actually a shame what's gone on with Nikolos be- and his, the allegations against him and the way the ATP's handled it. Yeah, because we don't get to embrace really what he is as a tennis player because there's there's that distraction and it, 
it's there's a lot of unfortunate things that have happened in that area yeah. let's say um this year but he's playing incredibly um i don't think gregor's the favorite i think yeah. he's come maybe too far physically he's had some tough matches but like yeah like you're saying this is this is very much a toss-up these matches yeah i, I wouldn't dare bet on them no. would you no, well, no, I've stayed away. Thing, if I, you know, I have to do the segment for uh, you know someone's got to drive those TC Podcast Network listens, and we're not getting lucky lock cords every week. But um, no, it's uh, it's, it's sorry, that's <laughs> too real. Um, but it uh, it no, it's it's so fascinating. You're right. The thing is, Dimitrov got a day off, and given the matches he had played, yes. that that was a man in need of a day off. Um, not that Cam Nori didn't need one though, and that's the thing. You're going to give Nori a day off, and one of my favorite takes from myself a typical podcast phrase here on the mini break but one of my favorite takes of the week was rba and cam nori playing each other this week and it was the spider-man meme where rba's but you know it's a gray spider-man for rba where he's like younger version of me was cam nori where it's just a physical nightmare and i'm taking away everything you want to do and it's just like that's nori at this point of his career and so you're right he's going to take everything away from grigor Grigor three and three this season, but I think it was like fifty two and thirty eight in his career against lefties, or maybe it was fifty two mm. and twenty eight. So he's like, it's not an issue for him, and it's not as though Nori's got the huge serve to overwhelm that one handed backhand. He'll hit that spot really well, but yeah. I don't know. To your point, yeah. I have no freaking clue. Like it, it's anyone's game. I, I just know I'm going to say it's not someone, and then that person will win. So rather than do that, I'm just. I agree. It's just like. No, stay away. <laughs> like I have, no, I don't want, I want no part of this. I stay away from any, any tennis match calling the winner. Yeah. You know, you know why, Alex? Because personally, for me, when I pick a winner and I go out there in public and say, then I root for that person, and I hate yeah. rooting for anybody. <laughs> exactly. When I'm trying to watch a tennis match and analyze it and write about it. Well, I'll tell you one place you're wrong. Gruskin versus Rothenberg, you can root and bet on Gruskin. I'd crush him. And whether it's ping pong, tennis, the, it's played out, guaranteed win. You can lock that in. Minus okay. 500 for Gruskin. If that comes across, I will certainly do that. Yeah. Had, had Nori defeated Dimitrov 5-5 five and five in Miami. Mm-hmm. Fritz is 2-1 and one against Bacheloshvili with two of the meetings split this season. So not a whole lot to go on. I don't know what you can take from the Nori Dimitrov meeting in Miami. I, I didn't watch it. I don't know much about it, but I hope it's three. I hope they're both three sets, and I hope they're just lots of good tennis. Yeah, let's just hope for health. Let's hope for consistency. Let's <laughs> hope for good matches. But with that said, of course, you're on tennis TV. I know this week doing multiple different things for them. What can listeners expect from you down the home stretch of this tournament and you know through the end of this season? Oh, geez, I'll be keeping busy. I think I'm always popping up some stuff at Tennis Now, keep an eye on these matches, and keep keep your eye on the social of Tennis TV, of course, which I'm sure everybody everybody does. And then down the stretch, a lot of tennis majors, Tennis Now, just keeping an eye on things in general. I'm always keeping busy, and we'll take it to the last ball, in, uh, which will be, what, December Davis Cup? Yeah, it's, and then you get to Mood Badala, and you're just like, am I going to watch an exhibition? Well, I might as well watch it because what else am I doing? It's December. Uh, yeah, there is no off season. Everyone knows that. Um, my last question for you, non-tennis related, but maybe the most important one I'm going to ask. How's the Steve Eiserman rebuild going? Are my wings back? Are we back yet? I, I just saw they blew a three-goal lead against Tampa, so maybe not back you know, in the present tense, but I'm sure with Steve Eiserman, things are going to get better pretty quickly. My and little that's brother, be nice. my little brother's named Nicholas Stephen Gruskin, and like you know, we're Jewish, so Nicholas not a common Jewish name, uh, spelled C K, not C H, because you know. Um, but anyways, uh, it's not spelled C K; it's spelled K. That was sorry, Nick. Um, mm. Anyways, all that is to say. He was born 2002. That's smack dab when the Red Wings were freaking awesome. And we used to watch games every night in my parents' room. And so when my mom was pregnant, we were like, we should name him Nicholas, like Nick Lidstrom. And then mm-hmm. the middle name should be Steve, like Steve Eiserman. And my parents have admitted, yes, that is why we named him that, because you guys made a pretty good argument. They're like, sure, let's. it's a third son. Well, we're out of names. Nicholas Stevens, fine. And he was on an airplane, and he sat next to Steve Eiserman. And he was like, I would never do this, but you are, I'm named after you. Like, can we get a photo together? And they did. And it was, yeah, and it was a couple weeks ago. And he sent me the photo and I was like, oh, that's, that's awesome. I was it like, was a couple weeks ago. Yeah. I think he was flying back to, to school, um, for college and like, I was next to him. <laughs> he was like, Steve, 
He's like, hi, I'm Nicholas Steven. Good to meet you. Um, or at least in my head, that's how it played out. Truth be told, knowing Nick, he probably like snuck. He's like, hi, I'm, I'm Nicholas. <laughs> it's just do mind picture. Um, but anyways, all of that is to say, who's your team? You definitely have an NHL team. Yeah, I'm an Islanders fan from way back. Oh, good times for the Islanders? Decent times? Right, right now, very good with Barry Trotz as the coach. Um, it's... It's been it's been two conference finals in a row. Mm-hmm. They're a t- they're one of those teams that plays with a lot of heart. Mm-hmm. One of those teams that that you can definitely get behind, whether they go all the way or not. It's it's much better than it has been. So you, you know you know these franchises go back and forth, right? Is it Islanders, Mets, Jets? Is that the life you're living? I'm not living that life, but that's the life. That's the commonly lived life. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm glad. It's you're so not. funny how it works, right? Yeah. Exactly. You have to do it. Um, no, that's great to hear. Well, Chris, it is always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for taking the time this morning. Good luck to you guys. Obviously, not only down the home stretch of Indian Wells, but always enjoy seeing your work. And as you know, spot will always be open for you. Thank you, Alex. I enjoyed it. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with Chris Otto. A thank you to him for taking the time to chat. A thank you to all of you for tolerating our hockey talk at the end. But of course, if you aren't already, follow all of Chris's work. Truly one of the best in the business. And you know, I just really enjoy the way he thinks about the game. So again, thank you to him for taking the time to chat with us today. Of course, as I mentioned at the top, we break down all of the women's singles action over on our Great Shot podcast feed today with Tennis.com editorial producer David Kane. If you've missed any of the action at Indian Wells, you can catch up on it all on our website, CrackedRackets.com. If you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at CrackedRackets. You want to message me directly, I am at GreatShotPod. A shout-out, as always, to our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, for the f*** of an any job they do day in, day out. Shout-out, to as well, to our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's Tennis-Point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all that said... For our super producers, Fliegner and Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, our fantastic guest, Chris Otto, and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>